Welcome to the Harvard Center for International Development's Road to Gem 23 Climate and Development Podcast. My name is Charles Hua, and I'm a senior at Harvard College and a CID student ambassador. CID's Road to Gem 23 series proceeds and helps launch CID's Global Empowerment Meeting, or GEM, Growing in a Green World, on May 10th and 11th. At CID, we work across a global network of researchers and practitioners to build, convene, and deploy talent to address the world's most pressing challenges. On our road to GEM 23, we strive to elevate and learn from voices from the countries on the front lines of the climate crisis, and will feature important learnings from the leaders who will be active participants at GEM 23. This week, we are joined by Scott Selwood, who's a policy lead on human rights and extractive industries with Oxfam, and is trained as a lawyer and geographer. Scott, thank you for talking with me today. Charles, it's a real pleasure to have been invited. So, Scott, can you walk us a bit through your work with Oxfam? Why is Oxfam focusing on the energy transition, and what are some of the big questions that you're specifically working to tackle? Sure, Charles. Oxfam is a global organization that tackles the root causes of inequality and injustice, and few sectors have contributed to the twin crises of inequality and climate change more than the mining, oil and gas sectors. So I'm part of a team a global team that campaigns for natural resource justice for communities impacted by these sorts of projects. And we support frontline communities to hold powerful actors accountable, so be that governments, companies, or financial institutions. And so, you know, there I guess there are two ways in which our team is contributing to to questions on the energy transition. First is really around phasing out of fossil fuels, And so we know that climate action requires sort of an aggressive reduction in total greenhouse gas emissions. And so to do that, that means leaving significant amounts of oil, natural gas, and almost all coal in the ground. And so this is is probably a big priority for our global campaign. But secondly, climate action also requires decarbonizing global energy and transport systems and electrifying them with renewable power. And so you know, both these areas, phasing out and electrification, uh, uh, sort of raise really big justice questions. And our work is really trying to ensure that climate action doesn't further, just, or isn't used rather, to, to justify further harm and human rights abuses to frontline and Indigenous communities around the globe. Thanks, Scott. And can you quickly touch on what historically, in terms of the traditional mode of fossil fuel energy generation, has primarily consisted of in terms of some of the human rights violations and other issues that that you've touched upon and what you portend for clean energy in terms of some of the perhaps similar or different dynamics with issues of environmental and climate justice, with uh, labor issues and with um, a lot of the human rights abuses that you're, you're discussing. Yeah, so, so Charles, I mean, in terms of some of the, the historical work we've looked at around fossil fuels, you know, we've, we've really looked at the, the, the impacts. These are massive projects that, that take up significant sort of areas of land that have sort of forced the displacement of, of, of local communities. These are projects that have contributed, you know, significant amounts of, of greenhouse gas emissions, but have also contributed to um, more localised forms of pollution, whether that's through oil spills, the contamination of rivers, uh, waterways. Uh, for Oxfam, one of our longest 
pieces of program work has really been focused on oil extraction and sort of the justice and inequality questions around oil extraction in the Peruvian Amazon. And their communities have been fired, have been, I mean, oil has been produced in the Amazon for almost 50 years. Um, and a number of indigenous federations in sort of the northwestern part of Peru have been really campaigning for, 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 for decades, generations even, to um, push companies to clean up, or well, firstly to stop contaminating um, the, the drinking water, the, the lands in which they're growing food, and to clean up the, the, the toxic waste that have been left there and to really remediate sort of these harms that, that, you know, I mean, I think more recently, a couple, I think it was a couple of years ago, there was an epidemiological study that, that really highlighted the toxic uh, heavy metals that were in people's bodies in that part of, of the world. Again, all the consequences of a long history of, of oil production that had been really unregulated and had really been responsible for significant uh, public health and environmental uh, issues. And so... You know, these are some of the, you know, that's a really concrete example of the sorts of impacts that oil extraction, for example, has had. We worry, you know, looking, looking ahead, not, obviously the phase out is really important, but in terms of sort of the electrification and the sort of the decarbonization of the energy uh, and transport systems, you know, we really worry that that's going to, there's going to be a new boom, I suppose you could describe it as that, a, a boom in, in, in mining that's really tied to sort of some of the decarbonisation goals that many governments uh, have. And, and that's very much tied to sort of this growth in, in, in renewable energy infrastructure, but it's also the growth in electric vehicles and the, glo- and the growth in sort of energy storage. So the batteries that, that are going to be required to connect solar farms, to connect wind farms to, to our energy grids. And that sort of expansion or intensification of extractive industries, particularly mining, you know, we really worry that that's going to repeat the same sort of mistakes of the past. And so a lot of our camp- current campaign work around minerals is very much focused around avoiding those impacts from happening in the future. Um, and for that, we've, we've got some uh, different solutions that we're, that we're proposing to put forward. So... Uh... Following up on that, as you know, there's a big push, particularly in the U.S., around electric vehicles as a critical linchpin to decarbonize the transportation sector. To some extent, this makes a lot of sense. There's a very strong car culture in the U.S., and EVs are a plug-in solution, and this is certainly true for many other developed countries as well. But there's a lot of problems that are often overlooked, like the ones that you mentioned in terms of critical minerals mining, resource extraction, end-of-life resource recycling, how would you characterize some of these challenges and, in particular, why they're not being discussed as much as they, as, as you might wish for them to be? Yeah, Charles, I've read recently that, that automakers globally are planning to spend nearly $1.2 trillion over the next seven years to manufacture electric vehicles. So you're right. I think we, there's a lot of focus around expanding the uptake of electric vehicles as, and I say that private electric vehicles, uh, as a solution to decarbonize transportation. And I see three, at least three challenges with this. First is the focus on, on, on private vehicles. You know, I think this is, no pun intended, driving a lot of the modeling around future demand projections. But this really comes with complete disregard for the human environmental impacts that follow increased mining. So in some ways, this sort of 
real, I guess there's an excitement emphasis around private vehicle use, but that is the numbers, the projections really would require such a significant amount of new mining. And what's not included in that conversation is really that mining is and has significant human environmental impacts. So in some ways, this is a side effect that isn't gaining the attention it's needed. And it doesn't have to be like this. I mean, these are projections of, of you know, again, in some ways, almost replacing sort of the dominant car culture, individual car ownership with switching the internal combustion just to an electric vehicle, right? A couple of weeks ago, some new research that came out, and it just looked at one of the minerals that are you know, used in electric vehicle batteries, and that's lithium. But by looking differently at the modelling, just in the United States, we could reduce future lithium demand by up to 90% by changing kind of the the assumptions behind our modelling, by investing in mass transport, by investing in land use planning, smaller vehicles, and building in um, more explicit mineral recycling into those projections. So, I mean, that's extraordinary, right? Like a 90% reduction in the potential future demand for just one mineral by thinking differently about, well, let's prioritize smaller vehicles, do different types of land use planning, really prioritize mass transport over private vehicle use. So these are some of the questions that I think that need to be put on the table and really built in. Again, when we don't talk about the environmental and social impacts of mining, that's directly tied to sort of some of these modeling around you know the future of EVs you know I think we lose that what is such an important consideration that has to be prioritized and secondly I think to when we think about some of this modeling inflated expect the mining sector has always been historically tied to sort of inflated expectations and I think we need to take seriously the political effects of these sorts of things right when under inflated expectations this leads governments, it leads companies to rush and explore and approve new mines. You get new players come in who, who, you know, maybe junior companies that perhaps have much higher risk tolerance for cutting corners, keeping costs down, maybe have a higher risk tolerance to sort of push the boundaries on their human rights and environmental obligations, just to take advantage of, you know, a short period of perhaps inflated prices or high, potential high prices. And I think that We've seen that happen in the past, and that's been devastating for Indigenous and frontline communities. And thirdly, I think part of when we think about these booms right, in, 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 in minerals, in mineral prices, that also leads to a rush on deal-making, which can create you know, major corruption risks. And we've seen this happen in the past uh, under other periods of really high mineral prices, which is what we're seeing at the moment. And so there's an important role we want to see sort of more and better sort of oversight and due diligence by governments and and companies, because currently that's not, they're not keeping pace and that's leaving major gaps in policies, regulations uh, across a whole whole range of supply chains, which will leave, which which is creating major risks in terms of human rights, environmental pollution, um, and all of which will delay the transition because you will see more and more project stoppages protest, delays, which is what we've always seen when, when communities organise in defence of their rights. The, the, it's the worst projects that get stopped. And, I mean, that has this sort of you know, much bigger 
impact, about delaying some of the really important progress we need to make um, to, to decarbonize. So many critical resources are concentrated in the global south, in indigenous communities, and other what you might call environmental justice communities. Is there a pathway to incorporating environmental justice into this resource extraction for these decarbonization solutions that you're talking about? Or is this fundamentally a contradiction or, or oxymoron to some degree? Charles, I mean, as I said, based on past activities, I mean, there's ample evidence to be pessimistic. Last October, I joined an event hosted by sort of a mining faith and reflection initiative, um, sort of a dialogue with mining CEOs, socially responsible investors, uh, and NGOs like Oxfam. And I was struck, sort of the, the framing of this was that sort of general recognition that the mining sector had lost the trust of its communities. You know, in other words, there's a, there's a community trust deficit, I think was the, was the words used. And that the mining sector really needed to, and that rebuilding trust was going to take more than just words and, and sort of action was needed on, on, on a suite of fronts, including taking responsibility for legacy issues. We argue at Oxfam that there are solutions to this dilemma that you've, you've, you've put out, right? First we need to find and fund solutions that minimise the need for new mining. We need to really take the pressure off um, you know, communities around the world. And in fact, mining is incompatible in some parts of the world, whether that's on land that provides valuable agricultural resources, whether it's essential for recharging water systems, uh, for biodiversity or for other spiritual and cultural reasons. Second, what mining is still needed should only operate with the full support and consent of the communities uh, that those projects impact. Um, And companies that can commit to do that will have a huge competitive advantage. With more and more automakers, tech companies, et cetera, want to be able to show that their mineral supply chains are environmentally and socially just. So first, minimize the need for new mines. Secondly, what mining is needed, you know, really should only operate with the full consent and support of the communities that they impact. And third, sort of a little bit, I mentioned about legacy issues. You know, environmental justice really requires governments and companies to take responsibility for, for, for legacy issues that, that have continue to plague mining affected communities today. I mentioned at the, at the beginning sort of some of the ongoing impacts of, of oil extraction and sort of the public health impacts of oil. In February this year, I had an opportunity to visit with colleagues in southern Africa and you know, new research coming out of Zambia, this is a, in a mining community, was really demonstrating that residents there have almost lethal levels of lead in their bloodstreams. More than 25 years after a nearby mine had closed and the land had, had not been re- rehabilitated. So environmental justice for, as part of the energy transition, really means we must take uh, that these legacy issues need to be tackled before new mining uh, even goes ahead. But those are the three solutions. So that's my positive spin. I mean, if we can, if we can get those three conditions right, reducing the need for new mining uh, only with consent um, and tackling legacy issues, um, you know, I think that that's the pathway to incorporating EJ, environmental justice into these into future resource extraction questions. 
Thanks, Scott. That makes a lot of sense. And you, you've led a lot of research on corporate policies and practices around critical resources. You're currently looking at five resources in particular, lithium, cobalt, nickel, graphite, and copper. Can you walk us through your research? What motivated it? What, what are the questions that you were trying to answer? What methodologies are used? And, and maybe some of the findings that you have. Yeah, thanks, Charles. So those five minerals are minerals that are used in sort of lithium-ion batteries. So they're sort of our the most dominant form of, of rechargeable battery at the moment. And again, as you know, looking at some of those major pr- projections in terms of electric vehicle uptake, um, the decarbonisation goals of different governments, we we wanted to focus in on those minerals because we were really concerned that there were worrying signals that, again, to achieve decarbonisation goals, that there was going to be fast tracking or winding back environment protection, sort of the, that these minerals would be seeing a spike in, 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 in high prices and demand and that that would um, lead to some of these sort of a continuation of the sort of impacts we've seen historically. But, of course, this time all tied up in, in some ways insulated from scrutiny under the guise of, of, of climate priorities. Secondly, I mean, we were, we were hearing from our local partners across different parts of the world that we, the governments and companies were already renewing their you know, ec- energy to, and efforts to, to seek access and control over larger areas of land for these goals, which obviously was putting pressure on Indigenous and rural communities. And I think there's some interesting statistics that, that sort of really set up the scene for like kind of what's at stake, why is this important? You know, a recent global sample of over 5,000 mining projects found that over 50% of these projects were located on or near the lands of Indigenous peoples. A second study, a slightly smaller sample, but it showed 80% of, of something like 700 mining projects for transition minerals. This was just in countries implementing the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, an important transparency, global transparency norm. of those projects were located on or near the the territories of Indigenous peoples. And here in the US, uh, you you may well be familiar with some mapping that MSCI did that that really showed that 97% of nickel, 80% of copper, or 89% of copper, almost 80% of lithium are located within 35 miles of Native American lands. And so these sorts of minerals are found in or on the lands of of indigenous peoples, and so for us, that was really motivated us to, to look to look more more closely at, at sort of the corporate policies of companies who are really doing this work. We wanted to look at corporate policies because we know that few national governments have laws that really recognise and fully respect indigenous sovereignty, and so for many communities, the threat of compulsory land acquisition hangs over their negotiations with mining companies. And so we've. For more than 20 years, a big push Oxfam has had is really push companies to publicly commit to apply the highest standard under international law and only advance a project with the full support and consent of affected communities, even if national laws don't meet that same standard. And so we selected 43 companies uh, with major resource and reserve estimates for those five minerals that you mentioned, just to sort of see where they fit in terms of their public policy commitments along a spectrum sort of, of, of community engagement spectrum, which you know, goes from sort of one-way you know, information all the way through to best practice and really that where communities are given the power to give or withhold consent 
And so we started with a desktop analysis of the public, of publicly available policies. We looked for things like, you know, references to the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, uh, language that referenced free, prior and informed consent, uh, and what a company would do if consent was withheld. You know, if they rely, if the company would rely on a government approval or would they go beyond compliance? We looked for qualifying language as to when they would apply that highest standard of, of free, prior and informed consent. Some of the language we've seen in a lot of these policies is if required by law. We will seek to obtain consent. In fact, a major industry association in, in their relevant performance expectation uses the, the qualifying language. We, our members will work to obtain the free prior and informed consent of communities. And, you know, work to obtain is it's a good, good attempt, but not we will respect a community's decision if they uh, to give or withhold consent. We've been reaching out to companies, asking them to participate in interviews to really fully understand, make sure that we fully understand their policy positions. Um, we're finalising the research this month and aiming to publish in July. So I can give you maybe just a couple of the, the sort of the highlights of some of the findings so far. And so what we're finding is that a lot of companies have community engagement policies that really recognise, I think, demonstrate the business case for engaging early and meaningfully with affected communities. But only half of the companies we, 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 we've surveyed described how they approach their engagement with Indigenous peoples. And again, that's a real problem. As I said, given kind of the like where the relationship between where sort of where some of these projects are found and, and, and their proximity on or near the lands of Indigenous people. So that's a really big problem that not all of these companies have really clear policies about how they engage with Indigenous peoples. Of all of these companies, only three have clear and unambiguous policy commitments to respect free prior informed consent. And only one of those companies states that they will not proceed with a project without consent. Two of those companies are copper producers and one is a lithium company. At this stage, our research is finding that graphite and lithium companies in particular are lagging. And so that's, again, graphite really critical to the, in, in the anode of, of a rechargeable battery and lithium sort of being one of those minerals that's fundamental to, to, to all forms of, of rechargeable battery chemistry. And so across all of these different commodities, because we did look at both companies that have existing production, but also those companies that are sort of sitting on quite on major reserves, um, but haven't yet started production. Um, and it's those exploration or pre-production companies um, we're really worrying in terms of how they're falling short in terms of what we see as really the essential um, standards that they should be committing themselves to. We recognise that some of those companies are very small teams, relying very much on consultants. And this to us is really signalling a need for much greater focus from investors and regulators to support these companies in pre-production, to go beyond the sort of the bare minimum legal requirements. Again, once community trust has been broken and you haven't obtained the, the consent at the, from the exploration phase, it's really hard to recover. And so it's at that really early stage that a lot of these company community relations break down and can lead to you know, ongoing social tensions and, and conflict over the life of a project. Thank you, Scott. It sounds like very important and interesting research, so appreciate you sharing some of the findings. I, I want to ask you a question about mining waste. As you know, and as you identified, mining waste is a, is a, is a significant issue. Um, there's a, a lot of recent research around the potential risks of collapses of tailings dams, which are constructed near mines to store mining waste. 
And, you know, some of the kind of mining companies have tried to do a little bit of efforts to reduce those risks. But I'm curious just how you would characterize some of the challenges that mitigating mining risks pose right now while also ensuring that these sites are located not in communities that that really can't afford to bear the costs. I think, Charles, you really hit on a fundamentally critical question. I mean, we, as part of our current research, we haven't looked at company policies in relation to sort of global tailings management and, and some of that best practice work. But we've certainly, I guess it's sort of in some ways part of this, you know, the environmental and social costs of mining that really isn't being elevated in the same, given the, the significance that it ought to be, is for some of these minerals, you know, to meet some of these projected demands, even if when we take into account some of the, you know, the, the demand reduction strategies that we've been talking about, will require really the, in some ways, these are the lower quality or grades that will require much more significant excavation digging, processing, to recover the same, I guess, the quality of ore that is necessary. And I, so I talk about this, it's like the declining quality of ores globally for some of these minerals, I'm thinking particularly copper, is going to require much, like dramatically significant kind of digging, processing, excavation to recover the same quality of ore. And that's directly tied to kind of the production of waste that's attached to mining and sort of this really critical question you're asking about the social environmental risks that follow that processing of the, the siting of, of that waste, those waste facilities. And we've, and we've seen the devastating consequences that can come from um, when there's poor regulation or when companies have misled investors and regulators about the sort of the, the quality of, of their you know, certifying of their, of their dams and, and their tailings facilities. So that's probably all I can say for the time being. Um, we're very aware that the waste profile of these minerals is changing and is likely to be much worse than it's been historically. And that's going to create even more significant environmental and social hazards that need to be managed adequately. Uh, and effectively. So as we wrap things up, the problems that you've identified in today's conversation are truly massive in scope and scale. Do you think that we collectively as a society have a clear-eyed understanding or just conception of how truly massive this problem is? And how 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 should we make sense of these these issues and really develop a robust perspective around the size of these problems? On one hand, and you may have seen sort of on Twitter last week, that article by um, Andrew Nikiforik, I think it was called The Rising Chorus of Renewable Energy Skeptics, and kind of a point that I think he was trying to make about, you know, the need to re- modelling to replace all fossil fuel power stations with renewable was going to sort of have this tenfold increase in the number of facilities and kind of the, the, the quantity of stuff that would need to go in into that to con- construct all of those facilities and that sort of this you know trying to trying to in some ways show sort of the, a scale of, of the challenge 
of course, there are lots of, as we've talked about, there's lots of questions and concerns about sort of that modelling that didn't take into account sort of some of these fundamental efforts to try to reduce demand and, and things like that. But I think something like that sort of creates a sense of paralysis in many ways. So my sense of how, how do we make sense of these issues, we know the challenges are immense, but we also can see and I think take and look to the activism of individuals and communities really centred sort of these, in some ways, emblematic struggles to defend rights. And I think we can make sense of those struggles, right? Like we can make sense of kind of the communities demanding early and ongoing access to all the information about projects, um, communities, you know, really having the opportunity, given the power to, ne- or in, to negotiate the conditions under which projects are designed, implemented, monitored, and evaluated, right? And we really, I think that's the way in which we can make, we can sort of make sense of kind of these movements for change and ensuring that if we can get get it right at the project level, and again, as I've sort of set out sort of some of those, you know, what we think are sort of some of the core conditions for, for that to for that to move forward with the consent and support of the communities that are impacted. You know, I think that that's where we'll see you know, these projects able to go go forward that meet those conditions, but we'll also be able to sort of see those projects that don't meet those conditions really being you know, abandoned early. And, you know, I think that that's, I take comfort in focusing on kind of those really crucial uh, activism and sort of the, the, the organising efforts of, of communities around particular mining projects. And I think that's where I sort of, you know, Yes, we can get lost in sort of the sense of the scale of the challenge, but also looking to that leadership of, of communities around the globe. I think that's where we can really sort of see if we can get what it looks like to get it right at the project level. I think that's really important. Well, thank you, Scott, for taking the time to speak with us today. These were really important insights and, and really appreciate your, your research, your perspectives, and your advocacy around the importance of these, uh, these issues. You can find more information about Oxfam America at oxfamamerica.org. And you can follow Scott on Twitter at Scott underscore Selwood. Thanks again to Scott for taking the time to talk with us today. You can learn more about the Center for International Development's research, upcoming events, and how to join the GEM23 virtually at cid.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back soon.